And I scurry out of the elevator and get on the sidewalk all alone. And I call my attorney. I go, I got the job. He goes, how do you know you have the job? I said, I know I got the job. He goes, what tells you? Did they say they hired you? I said, no, but I got the job. (laughs) (laughs) He finally squeezes it out of me. I go, she kissed me in the elevator coming down. I got the job. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. It was a friendly kiss. Ben's Town President Dave Chachi Dennis loves radio and all of his radio friends. Hey, Chachi. Hey, everybody. Because Chachi loves everybody. (laughs) It's the pilot. It's not going anywhere. It is the pilot. (laughs) Are you recording on this, Kev? (laughs) <laughs> so here's the story with this, Johnny. I'm having dinner with Gary Wall, who you know well, mm-hmm. owns the Jack Format, very talented program director, and my partner, business partner, Andy. And this was his idea. And the thought was to have a podcast that we would put out Benstown as a company and interview very influential people in the radio business. And there are several of those that exist, but most of them are pretty business-like. And I listened to several of them. Caroline Beasley has one. Bob Pittman has one. Inside Radio Momentum Marketing, I'm sure I'm missing a few, Erica Farber, and they're all very good, but they focus mainly on the business aspect. And we want to do one that's going to be programming-centric and also that kind of digs deep into the emotions, the vulnerabilities of what it's like to program, to be out on really this this uh, a cliff, I guess, in a lot of ways when you're putting yourself out there. Because when you're putting your art out there, which I think You've done an amazing job throughout your career. That's really being vulnerable. So we want to talk about personal, um, certainly things that have affected you throughout your career and your whole entire life and how it's evolved. And then also talk about shop and the business aspect as well. Terrific. So that's where this whole thing came from. So if it's a success, it's all Gary Wall's idea. If it's a huge (laughs) failure, it's uh, all my business partner, Andy's idea. So how about that? <laughs> how is Andy? Andy's doing good. He's doing really well. He's actually coming out here in a couple of weeks. He's taking, and you'll appreciate this because you're a huge fan of Hawaii. He's going for the very first time to Hawaii. And we take it for granted. He's never been there? No, because he lives in Germany. So for them, it's, I think, well, it's nine hours, 10 hours, just Yeah, 10 or 11 hours just to get here. And then you've got another four or five hours to get to Hawaii. So it's a big trip. So they'll lay over here, take his kids to Disney, which they've never done before, which you'll also appreciate. Stand in line. Yeah. yeah. Nothing quite like standing in line in the California sunshine. He's trying to get out of taking his kids there, but I'm (laughs) like, you've got to do that. You cannot bring your kids to California and not visit Disney. So one of the things we wanted to do with this podcast and what I want to kick off with is uh, Kristen, who works in our marketing department. Mm-hmm. She thought that we needed to have a shtick that was important. And so our shtick in this podcast is that everyone's going to start the podcast drinking what their favorite drink is. And so ahead of time, much like we just did with you, we asked, and I knew this because I know so much uh, about Johnny, and I'll go into a little bit more about uh, Johnny here in a second, but let's get into the drink that you chose, which is a Dole Whip, and fill us in about why a Dole Whip and how did you first uh, get uh, exposed to Dole Whips? I discovered that in Hawaii and uh, just walking down the boulevard and they had these little kiosks uh-huh. and they were selling the stuff Dole Whip, which has very little calories and yet really satisfies your uh, thirst and your quench. Um, and it's pineapple and like, uh, kind of like a soft serve almost. And you can get it in a cup or on a cone and it's wonderful. I think I went back about 
eight times the first day. <laughs> it was so really? good. Did yeah, yeah, yeah. Literally, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I know they also have them at uh, near the Tiki Room at Disneyland as well. Right. And now, I just heard from someone who went to Disneyland the other day, the line out the front was interfering with the entrance to Adventureland. So now you have to go into the Tiki Room area in order to get a Dole Whip. You can't stand outside. Really? Just because the Dole Whip line yeah, is so, so long. We're fortunate. We're based uh, in, in Glendale and here at the, we're attached to a, a big mall. And in the mall, there's actually a little ice cream shop that sells these, which is, uh, I think, kind of unique because you don't come across them very often. No, when I first returned from Hawaii, the only place you could buy one was a little yogurt shop in Westwood. And I would drive all the way across town to have this <laughs> this dessert. It's so what, wonderful. What does, and Kevin, by the way, who's engineering today, and which we really appreciate, is enjoying one as well. What does the Dole Whip bring? What kind of memories, emotions, what do you feel from it? Oh, it just tastes great. It's, it's very sweet because of pineapple. It's cold. And uh, you think you had something to eat, actually, when it's uh, pretty much liquid. Well, we will, share, we will share the Dole Whip and uh, enjoy it on your behalf. And uh, and thanks for uh, for telling us about that. Let me give you just a little bit about background about Johnny. And honestly, you really don't need any introduction. I think most people in our business know you. Um, Johnny is. Let me start off on our personal relationship. I think about how lucky, and I think uh, Jim Collins, he calls it who luck. And who luck are the people that you meet throughout your career that really mentor you and help you. And I think I've been one of the luckiest people with the who's come into my life and you are, you're, you're, you're amongst the very top of that list. And I know for fact, I would not be where I am today if it weren't for all the guidance that you gave me both professionally and personally and everything that you've taught. Uh, when you walk around, taught to me, when you walk around Benstown, so much of the footprint here is honestly, I think emanates things that you've taught me uh, from design to uh, just the way how things look and feel and organization. Um, I, I really uh, just respect you more than I probably have ever told you and uh, both on a professional, but even on a personal uh, level, because I, of all the who luck that I've had, and I've had a lot of it, uh, I don't think I've ever gotten any more personal with anyone that I've worked with than, than you. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, your, your facility is wonderful here. And you did it all. I can I can see Chachi in every corner, but uh, uh, it's you know we're lucky. I think at one point you mentioned that there were like five good people who came out of Hemet, California. It was Jennifer York. That's right. Uh, you, me, um, Mark Dennis, and why can't I come up with number five? I've forgotten who that is. But people who really did well and and got to Los Angeles and etched their careers and have become successful. And I appreciate you including me in that, in that, in that list. Uh, that means, it means a lot to me. And uh, let, let's get into some of the background again, for those who, who don't know, but I think most people uh, do, but uh, Johnny is most famous in our industry for really being the architect, the creator. And I know you'll argue with me a little bit on this, but uh, of coast uh, 103.5, uh, he uh, worked at, uh, at K-Big. He uh, then went on to work at K-Earth 101 and The Wave. And Don Barrett from LARadio.com, um, someone actually wrote into his website just a couple weeks ago and had looked at the top three rated radio stations in Los Angeles and basically said that Johnny's 
fingers are all over all three of those radio stations. And it's true. I think number one is, I can't remember the exact order, but it's basically Coast, The Wave, and K-Earth, uh, one, two, and three. And then I would argue four was K-Big slash MyFM. It was right there. It was yeah. right there. So yeah. you could very well argue that all four radio stations that are the top four in Los Angeles have your fingerprints all over them. I want to thank Randy West for that. He's the guy who, okay. he was the- who made that note. Um, I, I, it's wonderful to be part of something that continues because so many of us in the entertainment and the industry, we are a part of something big and then you go 12, 15, 20 years and it's gone. It's evaporated and air. And these properties have continued on even with everything that's happened to radio. That's really profound when you think about what just happened with PLJ in New York to see legendary station like that wabc yeah klos yeah it's really uh very sad and i think something you should be incredibly proud of because i don't know any other program director in certainly any other major market but uh la to have literally something to do with the top four rated radio stations. Oh, thank you so much tom likas who is a, a big fan for some reason i don't know why i'm one of the few people i think he likes in the world <laughs> <laughs> he goes uh they asked why he always spoke fondly of me and he goes because this guy puts numbers up on the board you know it's actually very well put that is yeah. unbelievably true and we'll get more into the, the programming in a minute but you had brought up earlier that we're both from the same hometown of Hemet, and probably most people have no idea where Hemet is what Hemet is uh w- what it is or what it's like would you mind painting that picture a little bit of Hemet? it's about 100 miles uh outside of los angeles uh just beyond riverside california uh, it's a little little valley that's surrounded by hills on all four sides. And their big claim to fame is it's the foothills of heaven. <laughs> and, 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 uh, that's right. And the uh, bumper sticker, Hemet is heaven. That's right. Yeah. And uh, it's wonderful because, I mean, people would drive out there and you know the intersection on Florida Avenue. You could yeah. be at a stoplight. And look at all four corners, and there were banks. Yeah, so there right. was money out there. That's right. At one time, I had heard that it was the there was more money off of Florida Avenue than I think just about every street other than Wall Street because there were so many banks and people that had retired there, and they would line up at the beginning of every month to get their passbook stamped. This is when you had to go to the bank to see what your interest was, right. and they would actually yeah. line up to get them stamped so they it, could see how much money they had. Wonderful place to grow up. It was eight thousand people when I was. Uh, Moved there from Los Angeles at the age of two. And uh, when I left, it was about 32,000, I think. I don't know what the uh, population is these days. Yeah, I think it's substantially bigger now. I That's think- because it's on police. I mean, on uh, <laughs> cops. <laughs> cops. <laughs> Every other episode. <laughs> and between well, it and Vegas. <laughs> we grew up at, at, slightly, at slightly different times, but I grew up there as well. And I grew up uh, in, in you know 80s and uh, in, in the early 90s. And one of my uh, very dear friends, who Johnny knows very well, he came out when he was in high school and it was absolutely horrific for him. This was actually right after Magic Johnson had announced that he was HIV positive and people were unfortunately very misinformed and this was a small rural community mm-hmm. and there was a ton of backlash and he actually had to leave town. He had to go move with his grandparents out of town in San Diego because that's how bad it was. It, unfortunately, all the good people died off. Yeah, And uh, a lot of uh, no good nicks to use a term from the 50s, moved in. And while both of us, I'm sure, share an affection for Hemet, it's not what it once was. And that's a real shame. 
Now, you worked as a projectionist, correct, at the drive-in? Actually, it was at the walk-in theater. Oh, the walk-in. Sometimes I'd have to sub at the drive-in theater if the projectionist was missing that night. And uh, there were only two theaters in him at the walk-in and drive-in owned by the same guy. And uh, I did that at about the age of 16. And in those days, uh, they would get a movie like The Great Race. I remember that. And they'd hold that movie for two weeks or longer with no cartoon, no second feature. And we would open at noon and go until about midnight or one. And it was a non-union job. And you sat in that booth and had to have food brought to you. And it was so small. You could barely get squeezed between the the cinder block wall and uh, the projector with your body. And you had a little window that your face wouldn't even fit in to look at the screen. (laughs) And I counted every hole in the ceiling one day. It had that acoustical tile from (laughs) elementary school. It was... uh, and I knew every line of the movie because two weeks running in the movie like six or seven times a day. <laughs> yeah, it was an experience. But it was a wonderful experience. It was, I am so lucky. I'm one of the luckiest guys in the world because everything I ever wanted to do, for the most part, I had the chance to do. I wanted to be a projectionist. I got to do that. I wanted to be on the radio. I certainly got to do that. Uh, I wanted to be on television. I got to do that. Uh, I got to play a little bit in movies here and there, and it, it's just been great. I, you know, and what it's afforded me in terms of homes and lifestyle has been fantastic. It, it, it exceeds anything I could have dreamed of as a child. Did your love for Hollywood come from being a projectionist? I. Your expertise in L.A. and just what you know about this town is is unbelievable. I mean, you would be an incredible tour guide on uh, one of those tour buses that drive through uh, Beverly Hills. I've gone with you several times when people would come to visit, uh, come to visit the station or would be in town for uh, for whatever it is, and I'd go along with you, and you know so much about this city. It was, uh, I idolized uh, people on television. One was Bill Stella, who had a cartoon show every day called Engineer Bill. He showed Gumby cartoons and other things, and he ran model trains, and you got an engineer cap if he went on his program. I was nine years old when I got on that show, and and it was wonderful. I mean, I still have the train this day that he gave me, and it, it surrounds a model of Disneyland I have in my home. We're going to get to that, but I didn't realize <laughs> that Engineer Bill, the train that Engineer Bill gave you is part of That's your it. layout. The one that goes around, you know, the entire land. Well, we'll jump, Let's because we're on it right now. I was going to get to this at the end, but let's yeah. jump to it right now. And sorry, we're a little bit out of order, but I guess with the podcast, we can be out of order. But Hollywood was a big thing. Everyone, you had three television networks. Everyone watched the Academy Awards when they happened on TV. Um And there were the first movie magazines, and you had TV Guide who made these people household names. You knew everyone who was on television. And it was something to think that you could even meet them, let alone work with them one day, as I got to do with Dick Clark. How did it evolve from you being in Hemet and working as a projectionist? And obviously we talked about Coast, and we're going to get more into that in a few minutes. But how did your radio career begin, and where did it begin? Well, I wanted to be an actor. I, I thought of... Uh, uh, we don't have the benefit of photos here, but 
uh, motion pictures being all the way at the top. Slightly under that was television. Way down south was uh, radio. radio. Yeah, right by the dollar saver. <laughs> <laughs> Past the Dole Whip stand. Anyhow, um, one morning, uh, I got a call. There, we had a local radio station, KHSJ. stood for him at San Jacinto, the two cities in this valley where you and I were brought up. Um and they had given the radio station, I mean the school, a 15-minute program each Saturday or Sunday morning. I get this phone call from the host who happened to be a girl, a student, and she lived up in Idlewild, and she, uh, up in the mountain area, and she got snowed in that weekend. She goes, I need you to help me. I can't make it to the radio station to do this little 15-minute program. I said, why are you calling me? I have no experience. She goes, well, you do all these plays and whatnot. I loved acting in school. And the script's in my, you know, locker. Just here's the combination. Go to my locker, run out to the radio station. There'll be an engineer. Just do it. Just read what I have. I didn't want to, but I felt put on the spot. So I went to her locker and found these notes and went out to the radio station. And for 15 minutes of uh, show time, she had written about five minutes of material. <laughs> <laughs> And there's nothing like flying by the seat of your pants when you don't know what you're doing. Anyhow, uh, I got through it. I remember driving away in my little Chevy Corvair and looking in the rearview mirror as the towers were disappearing behind me. I went, I never want to do that again. I was so embarrassed. So you hated it. I didn't hate it. I was just embarrassed. I had done a bad job. Oh, you and Johnny's, uh, you're, you're a perfectionist, which I'm sure had to be very tough on you to walk away from something that you felt wasn't perfect. You know, and when you're 16 years old, you have this squeaky voice. And <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, uh, I think it took a couple of months, but the uh, general manager of the radio station, I guess, was listening. Somehow, he found out who I was and asked me to come in and... I was basically a gopher. I'd get hamburgers and answer request lines, that kind of thing. And finally, um, uh, they only had two full-time people at the radio station because it went off every afternoon when the sun went down. One of the guys wanted to have uh, his sixth day off, so he would pre-record on reel-to-reel tape all his announcements. Very and early I, on voice tracking. Yeah. yeah, and I would run those and play the records and whatnot. And the day happened where there's a live commercial, a lot of live commercials back in those days. And he hadn't recorded it. I called the general manager at home. I said, what do I do? What do I do? And he goes, well, you have a microphone. You have a mouth. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the beginning. That's how I got the bug. What a terrific story. And I've known you for almost 20 years, and I don't think I've heard that story before. That's wonderful. And the other thing was, I realized at a young age, you could act be on a television show or something and back in that day maybe make six or eight hundred dollars which would be like three to ten thousand today and uh the money was wonderful but are you can work tomorrow three days from now three months from now three years from now or ever again and i found out quickly radio at least back in the day paid every two weeks right on the money Oh. And I got spoiled by the security. You like that regular paycheck? Oh, yeah. yeah. That was nice. Yeah. Now, I know you went to El Paso. You also spent time in Chicago, correct? Mm-hmm. And you were in Riverside, San Bernardino as well at a station called, uh, was that The Beat? Well, Tiger? No, no. Well, yeah, Tiger Radio, KFXM. Yeah. 
Yeah, I left KHSJ, went to KAFY Cafe 55 in Bakersfield for a day. For one day, literally? Yeah, and then I got hired at KFXM, which was wonderful in San Bernardino, because that's what all the kids listen to in heaven and the Inland Empire. And uh, spent four and a half years or so there. Went uh, from there as a disc jockey to... I can't remember the order. I think it was Cute 102, which is 1019 in L.A. now. Also did K-Rock, which was only AM back then. It was uh, 1500, and we were getting the FM while I was there. And uh, also uh, KKDJ, which is today KISS. Wow. So you've been to a lot of stations. I hadn't realized you'd been to... I've been through so many stations. And then my father, who had... He always... He was glad that I was following my dream. He didn't support it much. He was worried about my success, I think. He, um, he always said, why do you want to be on the air? I said, well, you know, that's what was happening at the time. And uh, it was the most exciting part of broadcasting to me. He said, you've, you've got to learn the business side of this. Because, and I couldn't believe how he predicted this like four decades in advance he says the day's gonna come when they're gonna figure out how to do this without a live person but because you have the management experience and you can perform on the air you'll be more valuable your father had that foresight yeah that was like 1966 is when he's telling me this that's incredible yeah and he was absolutely right so when the opportunity came up to go to el paso and learn programming i took it uh, my program director from K-Rock, Jim Tabor, had left K-Rock, and he decided he wanted to become an owner. He bought stations in El Paso, called me up one day and said, what are you doing these days? And I was in L.A., and I said, well, I'm on KKDJ, which was a great FM. And uh, he goes, well, you're a small fish in a big market. How, how would you like to be a big fish in a small market? And uh, he, he flew me out three times and i turned him down three times really the last time he was so upset with me he wouldn't drive me back to the airport <laughs> <laughs> why did you you turned him down just because you didn't want to go to el paso or i the- couldn't give up on los angeles and then i i came back that third time he, he would drive me up there's a scenic point up there on on the hill el paso's laid in the shape of a u around the rocky mountain chain um and he had me look out, and he goes, look out there. Unlike Los Angeles, four out of five people will know your name if you, when you come here. Anyhow, I came back and to L.A., and I realized that I had told him, I don't want to uh, leave L.A. because I'm so attached to it. Well, I hadn't been to the beach in probably 10 years. And I flew into L.A. from one of my trips to Hawaii and looked out over that sea of lights and realized, even though at KKDJ we probably had, I don't know, a four or five share in those days, that not that many, that's, that means only four homes out of 100 might know right. who you are. And because I did late night, not even that. So I called him up one day and said, uh, hey, uh, how's things going in El Paso? And he said, fine. He's still talking to you. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. barely. (laughs) And I said, "Uh, did you hire a PD? And he goes, yeah, why? I said, oh, never mind. He goes, no, no, what what do you want? I said, well, (laughs) believe it or not, I've had a change of heart (laughs) and I'd like to come out. He goes, you're hired. I go, what about the guy you just hired? He goes, 
he's out. <laughs> <laughs> That poor guy, really? Yeah. <laughs> so just to continue, uh, because you asked the question, I wanted to return to L.A. It took me four and a half years in El Paso, and I was really missing Los Angeles. And your and, programming at that time, having quite a bit of success. Oh, great. Right? I mean, it, El Paso, Texas at the time was the youngest city in the United States in terms of um, uh, average age. It was 22.6. Oh, wow. Really young city. So all the radio that, out there, there were like nine contemporary stations, three top 40s of which we were one. We won the first book and we never looked back. We took on X-Rock 80, which was a 150,000-watt AMer. 150,000? I didn't even know that, that was possible. you could hear in Palm Springs. Oh, my gosh. Literally. And uh, we beat them and kept that position for years and years. But I would fly out to Los Angeles and speak to general managers of L.A. radio stations. No one would take me seriously because I was in market 69, whatever number it was at the time. And then one day, uh, Chicago called. Thanks to my connection with Bob Hamilton at K-Earth, he recommended me to Dave Martin, who was going to launch WCFL in Chicago, relaunch it. And uh, they wanted uh, an APD, which in my mind was a step down. But at that point in time, it's always been New York is market size number one, LA number two, Chicago number three. There was a short period of time when... Los Angeles slipped to three, and Chicago moved up to two. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was based on uh, gas sales, and, and they have a formula for determining market size. And I went, if I go to market two, it'll be easier to go to market three, Los Angeles, which is home. Sure. And that's exactly what happened. I spent 18 months up there at CFL on a vacation, immediately got out from the airport, changed my clothes, went to have an interview at KFI, and I was hired. Now, I remember you telling me the story about Chicago, but you had a very extensive vinyl collection, a record collection, <laughs> that you know most people in radio uh, get largely through record labels and artists coming through, and Johnny had a very large record collection, and you didn't want to ship it all the way to Chicago. I'm sorry, you didn't want to ship it all the way to Los Angeles, and so you had them in the milk cartons, or the milk crates, and you lined all these milk crates up in the hallway of your apartment building, and you just put a big sign that said free, and you right. let all the residents just have at your collection. Yeah, I, I lived on the ninth floor of this apartment building, and it was going to cost, I don't know, a thousand bucks or whatever to move them. And since I was moving back to L.A. on my own dime, I didn't want to pay the freight. Oh, on your own. This must have been pre-John Tierney in your life. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, right. My, my attorney, wonderful agent and best, best, boy, best entertainment lawyer that there ever was. Um, in any event, he, uh, I realized I'm going to, I didn't have the milk crates, though. They were all just individual oh, they albums. Were all, okay. So I lined them up and they lined the entire hallway all around all these apartment doors for a full <laughs> floor. And I put a sign out there saying free, you know. And I went back in the apartment and forgot about it. About 45 minutes later, I remembered, I wonder if anyone's going to take these things. <laughs> and I go out there and there's about... 15 left <laughs> in the corner. Really bad stuff, too. They were all records. gone. Yeah. They were gone. Oh, my God. That was wonderful. So someone, do you think one person took your entire collection, or do you think it was? Uh, I think so, but he had help, whoever he was. Yeah. yeah. So you get to Los Angeles. You're at, uh, you get hired at KFI. As a PD. Don okay. With Tom Bigby, who was the program director. 
And that was wonderful because uh, I it wasn't really an interview. Uh, my old operations manager in El Paso knew Tom Bigby. They were friends. And Tom was being offered by Cox Radio either program WSB in Atlanta or take over KFI in Los Angeles. And I kept telling my friend, tell him to go to KFI and then you can tell him that he should hire me. <laughs> and so uh, he did go to KFI. And Tom is a, he's a kind of a rough guy back in the day because he played f- professional football. I mean, he's a big man. And uh, I think he only interviewed me as a favor to my old operations manager, Rish Wood. Anyhow, uh, he meets me for lunch at the Red Onion on uh, Wilshire Boulevard across from the radio station. And he's, he's being very nice. And the ratings happened to come out that day, and he had them written down on like a napkin or something. And he threw it in front of me and said, what do you think of this? And I said, well, oh, it's obviously a very Hispanic book because KRLA popped up and da-da-da-da-da-da. And I analyzed them for him in about three paragraphs, and it was done. And we just talked about Rish and other things. And as we're walking the 50 steps back to the radio station, he goes, so when can you be here? We hadn't talked about a job or anything. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, when can you be here? I said, are you offering me a job? He goes, yes. He goes, I go, well, when do you want me here? He goes, now. (laughs) And this guy was rough and tough. And I I looked at him. I realized he's serious. This isn't like a gym in El Paso. You can't say no. (laughs) Yeah. So I go, "Uh, uh, these people in Chicago have been wonderful to me. I said, I can be out here. I've got to resign first. And he reached into his pocket and gave me a quarter because we had pay phones. Then. <laughs> and he said, so resign. I said, look, I can't be here before two weeks, three days. I got to fly back, give them notice of two weeks, and it'll take three days for me to drive out. He goes, so get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I drove down Normandy, called my parents. I said, oh, my God. Uh, I, mom and dad, I'm going to coming back to LA, which is a dream come true. And, uh, my dad says, great. What are you going to be doing? I said, well, I'll be a KFI. Yeah. But what's your position? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> he, goes, he never told you what your job <laughs> no. was going to be. <laughs> and, and my dad says, well, what are you earning? I said, I don't know. He goes, <laughs> he goes don't you think you should find out? So I drive back to KFI, and somehow I get past the front door, and I get up to Tom's office, and he looks at me and goes, what are you doing here? I told you to get going. I said, two questions. What's my job, and how much am I getting paid? He goes, you'll be a production director in APD, and you'll get this amount of money, whatever. Now what a go. fabulous story. I had no idea that's, and that's how, how that how happened. And that's how it happened. And it was a thrill, because then I went back to the phone booth and called my parents and said, I can't believe it. I'm going to be the Loman and Barkley's boss, who they listen to every single day. And it was just terrific. How does Coast come about? Are they owned? Was, who's KFI owned at at this point? Or by That's it? Cox Radio. So Cox owned KFI. And Coast, and which was beautiful music. It's the number three beautiful music in town. K-Joy was the giant. K-Big was the second one. And then there was poor little Coast with 8,000 watts. And then Mary Catherine Sneed at this time was at Coast. Is that correct? She was. She had flipped WSB FM Atlanta from beautiful music to hot. I mean AC, and had great success with it. So LA was going to follow her cue, and they brought Mary Catherine in. 
Well, Tom Bigby, in the worst way, wanted to be the program director of it. But they weren't going to go that way for a variety of reasons. Tom thought he would pitch me. He goes, look, you can't possibly be hiring people. I'm interviewing people, not interview Johnny. I think in Tom's mind, he thought he could have some control over Coast if I was there because Tom had brought me in. I see. And there was an allegiance there. Um, so I had the interview with Mary Catherine. She decides I'm not the guy. And that's okay. I'm a little bent, but not bad. And like Tom Bigby says, you're going to be the program director one day of KFI anyhow. So just, you know, sit still and be, be quiet, be a good guy, and everything will happen for right. you. Well, one day, uh, Mary, Mary Catherine comes into my office. I happen to be on the telephone. And she wants to talk to me, but I don't want to talk to her because I'm a little bent. <laughs> so I make this phone conversation go on forever. And I keep waving her off like, it's okay. Right. And by the way, my <laughs> well, she's, Wait, she's outside your office? No, she's sitting on the couch inside Oh, my she's office. sitting in your office. And all throughout my office are hundreds of carts of her music for Coast <laughs> FM, which I, I said, it's fine. You know, I'll be glad to help you or whatever. And she goes, she writes me notes. She's writing me notes and passing it under my nose. Saying, I really want to have dinner with you. I've got to go home and potty train my, <laughs> my child, but I'll be back on Monday. I want dinner with you on Monday night. And I finally cut my hand over the phone and said, Mary Catherine, it's fine. Listen, I'm okay with you not picking me for coast and I'll help you in any way I can, but you don't have to take me to dinner. We're good. Everything's fine. She goes, no, I want to do it. I want to do it. I said, okay, fine. So Monday comes, she takes me to the Old World. Actually, she lets me pick the restaurant, the Old World on Sunset Boulevard. We're sitting there. And I'm so upset that I'm having clam chowder. And I hate fish. <laughs> <laughs> I'm eating something that I really just, dislike. Just to punish yourself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this, this is not a comfortable situation. And Mary Catherine, who's very soft-spoken and from Atlanta... She is quietly sipping her soup, and she's not looking up to me, at me, and she goes, do you still want to be program director of Ghost? And I figure I have nothing to lose. And I take my napkin, and I slap it down on the table, and I said, lady, don't F with me. <laughs> I wasn't good enough for you then. Why am I good enough for you now? Are you serious? And she goes, yeah, we, we want you to be. <laughs> what was her reaction when you told her that? She was, she maintained her calm. She, she's she a was pro wonderful. the whole entire yeah. time. <laughs> no, I really want, we want to give it to you. And I said, what changed? And she told me about this incident that convinced her that I was the guy. What incident was that? And this is the incident. So let's go back. I'm, I'm not told I'm PD at all. And I'm at KFI. Mary Catherine, we had a music library, which had albums. And it looked like a library because it had rows of records. Sure. And you could get lost in these rows of records. She's in there selecting music for Coast, I would imagine. And I happen to see her. And Steve LeBeau is uh, scheduling music on one of the first computer uh, systems called Selector from RCS. And, and it's late. It's seven something at night. And I see her. See, she didn't know I saw her. And I went, 
I'm going to make you regret not hiring me. And I walk out. She hasn't seen me. I walk back in. I say, Steve, what are you doing here? He goes, I got to get the music logs out for the you know, long weekend or whatever. I said, get out of here. You have a family. I don't. I'll do them. I'll take care of it all. And Steve left. Well, jump back to the restaurant now with Mary Catherine. She goes, when I saw you do that, I knew you were the guy. Really? <laughs> I didn't tell her for 25 years. <laughs> that I knew what I was doing. <laughs> that I wasn't that good guy. You wanted to come off as like a really nice, humane uh, guy. A hero. And a yeah. hero. And you were doing it just to, uh, uh, to, not to play Mary Catherine Sneed, but to uh, no. certainly get a, uh, an angle on, uh, on the gig. But, you know, in retrospect, I am that guy. You are that guy. You know, I can and, attest to that. Yeah, and... And it worked out. It was great for Cox. It was wonderful for Don Dalton, the general manager, who wanted me all the time. I interviewed with Don before Mary Catherine. And I found out later, Don wanted me all the time. MC thought maybe there could be someone else. But she interviewed the world, so I'm glad that I was selected. That is a great. Thank you for sharing that. What a fantastic story. I think, obviously, Coast is a fantastic radio station, just a legendary brand and I do believe you get a tremendous amount of credit for your programming chops, but I don't think that you get the credit you deserve for the brilliant marketing director you are and the brand manager that you are. And on that point, we're leaving the restaurant. Now I'm really happy, right? Okay. We're driving right, you know where it is, La Cienega Boulevard past Beverly Center. I remember exactly where this happened. And I'm getting all these ideas. And that's where this came from. I said, Mary Catherine, we've got to have some signatures. And she goes, what do you mean by that? I said, I'm going to have all the jocks, when they deliver the weather, the last line will be, and it's 48 degrees along, pause, the coast. coast. Which And that has brilliant. been repeated in focus group after focus group after focus group. For years and years, we would do these focus groups. And the real people would say, oh, that radio station, it's the one. And they could do it. So it, it printed perfectly. Literally just before we started this podcast, one of the employees here at Benstown mentioned that he grew up <laughs> listening to Coast as a kid and remembers that line. Mm-hmm. It's unbelievable that, and then you've got to put on, and I want to get into Dick Clark and how Dick becomes involved with the radio station. You could not get away from the branding of Coast. And to this day, if you go to YouTube and you look up where the streets have no name, the YouTube video that was recorded in downtown LA mm-hmm. and they're playing on the roof of, I don't remember what building you actually see at the beginning of the video, there's a bus that drives by and it's got the coast bus board on it. <laughs> and the marketing you did for that radio station was impeccable and just amazing as far as a brand. How didn't let's, uh, the first part I want to ask you is how did Dick and whose idea was it to get Dick Clark involved with the radio station? Well, b- before we jump to Dick, I want to give, uh, uh, Don Dalton, our general manager, all the credit for the marketing. And the reason is we had a budget to launch the station. And in our first book on Coast, we beat the number one AC in town, which was K-Best at the time, or K-Hits. I forget which call letter they were using that week. Um, And we had only been on for three quarters of that book, so it was wonderful. We beat them by a tenth. So in a little over two months, yeah, it really was a first to worst. We didn't have Dick Clark, okay? And then Don called me in when that book came in. He goes, we're going to do something here. Back when general managers had a lot of clout and could do what they wanted. 
He goes, it's either going to work or we're going to be fired. I went, I don't want to be fired. <laughs> I've only been here 14 weeks. What are you talking about? Anyhow, he goes, we need marketing in a big way. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take every dollar we have for the rest of the year and we're going to spend it this quarter. And if it works, the company will give us more to continue. If it doesn't work, we're out. <laughs> and I went, okay, because I trusted Don blindly. Anything he said, you know, he was the guy who put me in the position with, along with MC. And this is back in the day. I mean, this is a significant amount of money. Yes. Let alone, I mean, it would be a significant amount of money today, let alone adjusted for inflation. We're well, talking millions, correct? Right, because we bought a 50% showing of buses. 50%, that's a lot. So that meant we were the number one advertiser on buses in Los Angeles. Does that literally mean every other bus? Yes. Yeah. And, and by the way, there's three sides to the bus, so wow. do the multiplications there. Um, and we uh, had no less than 700 GRPs on television, which meant you pretty much saw us every night. Even if you tried to avoid us, it was impossible to do. And uh, let's see, I don't think we did billboards. We didn't believe in billboards at that time. But it worked. So we're, we're moseying along quite nicely and growing the radio station. And we happen now to be in Atlanta in a meeting with uh, the research group. And one of the guys there, I wish I could remember his name, tall guys, people listening to this podcast will know. Dick Springfield, I think, was his name. Oh, it came to me. Anyhow, we're taking a lunch break. And he goes, you know who would be perfect? He's walking back and forth eating his sandwich. The perfect spokesperson a person for a coast, Dick Clark. But you could never get him because it would cost too much. Everyone agreed. I nodded my head as well. Well, now I'm back in L.A. Over the success of Coast, uh, Dick Clark had a show called Rock, Roll, and Remember. And it was uh, marketed through Mutual at the time. A radio program. Right. You know, a countdown. Right. Two or three. I think it was three hours. And they would continue. Frank Murphy from from Mutual would call and pitch the show and pitch the show and pitch. The, and I wanted to get rid of Frank Murphy's phone calls. <laughs> so one day, I'm not even thinking about anything. Here, Frank Murphy's on the phone. I pick it up. I go, Frank. And then the thought came to me. He go, And he pitched the show. I said, tell you what. You tell Dick Clark if he does my television commercials for free. I'll clear his show. <laughs> he goes, he was taken back. You could tell. And he uh, hung up the phone and we were done. I went, oh, good. I'm finally out of that. And 20 minutes later, the phone rings and my secretary announces it's Dick Clark. I go, what? I pick up the phone. And he goes, Johnny K, Dick Clark. I understand I'm doing your television commercials. <laughs> I had no idea that's how that came about. Yeah, and by the way, uh, he did mention that I had to pay him a dollar to make it legal. <laughs> <laughs> so within a few months, you basically told Mary Catherine Sneed to go F herself and pretty well, much the same wait. thing to uh, to. Dick no, I, I didn't say that. I, I said, don't F with that. me. Yeah, don't F with me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, please, let's keep, because Mary Catherine's wonderful. I, I have no career without her. <laughs> that's amazing. So Dick calls you back and says he's going to do it now for a dollar. And let me give you a little bit more background on Johnny. And certainly I think a lot of people know this, but I think a lot probably do not, that he produced, to my knowledge, you produced almost all the Dick Clark 
commercials. He's an amazing director, television director, and uh, a video producer. Well, actually, I hired a company, Tabankin Productions, and Steve Tabankin produced the commercials. And the first year, uh, someone else directed them. So fast forward now, I'm in Hawaii. I get off a plane. I check in my hotel room. My The, the telephone is blinking red, so I have a message. I pick it up. It's Steve Tabank, and he happens to be on another island. He goes, can you get on a flight right away and come over here? We got to discuss budgets. I was on vacation. I didn't want to do that, but okay. And you had in those days, they didn't fly between Inter Island at night. So you had to beat the sun. And I, I could only get over there, and then I was stuck on this other island. I went over there, and we discussed it. And the budget was getting out of hand. It was a hundred grand or so to get these things done. And we were going line by line. And he said, Steve, <laughs> God bless Steve. Again, another great, uh, great deal of luck falling all over me. He, he, we get to the line for the director, which was 3500 a day or whatever it was at the time. He goes, well, you're a director. Could you do this? And then we can eliminate that line. And well, thank God I learned because of my love for Hollywood, never say no. Can you scuba dive? Yes. Can you jet ski? Yes. I can do anything. Uh, ride a horse? Sure. <laughs> um, and I said yes. And suddenly I find myself, I'm on the set and I'm going to direct Dick Clark. And I, I literally go over to Steve. I said, how do I call the shot? I don't even know. You know, you don't, you don't really do lights, camera, sound, do you? He goes, no. He goes, roll sound, roll videotape. Roll, roll camera, speed, speed, you know, and okay, ready, set, action. And this is all on film because I've been on the set with you before, and this is really expensive film. 35 so. millimeter film. I would not do video. I did not like the look of video. Never have until recently. And I remember the reels cost, I mean, hundreds of dollars, right? Or maybe. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You could, you could go through a lot of money real quick if you didn't get it if you right. You have it right. right. How does your relationship and. Let me just back up for a second. I just saw Steve at your 70th birthday party, literally just maybe a month ago. Oh, right, right. Um, I know you're still friends with Mary Catherine. I know you keep all these people in your lives. And Dick's, well, unfortunately, Dick has passed, but you're still wonderful friends with his wife, Carrie Clark, who was right. at, your, uh, at your, your wedding not too long ago. She's wonderful. How does your relationship with Dick evolve? And tell me about how that impacted you. Um, well, things went okay. Every time we were on the set together, Dick, if when I yelled cut after a, a shot, he would go off in the corner and get on the cell phone or on a, on a landline, and he was working some other project. I swear, I asked him one time, how many projects do you have going? He goes, uh, 24, 25 at any time, particular point in time. He was producing Amazing. everything. So the day finally came when... I really had to step up to the plate. <clears throat> Dick arrived. It was apparent he wasn't having a, the greatest day. And what the way I typically did this, Dick's call was 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. We were there since 7. We'd set up the shots and everything, and I would play Dick on videotape. We, they'd videotape me doing it, and I would play Dick's part. And Dick would come in, in the morning and say, do you have any tape on yourself? I go, yeah. And he'd watch it and he'd go, well, I'm not going to hold my hand that way. I'll do this or I'll cock my head that way. I go, fine, fine. I won't, you know, I don't need that pencil in my hand. And he taught me things like, this is the way you hold a microphone. 
you know, you only use three fingers, not all five. And, and it was wonderful. God, he shared so much good information with me. Anyhow, he would love to be talked into the shot after you call speed and sound and everything. Ready, set, action. He wanted that three beats like that. Because ready, he'd take a breath, set, he'd lift his eyebrows and put on that wonderful smile. And action, he would take off like, like a racehorse. Um, and sometimes, in fact, often I would give him direction in between. Well, we're, we're rehearsing, people are hanging lights, a lot of stuff going on. And I said, Dick, because I wrote this, the copy too, right? I directed the spots, I wrote the spots, I edited the commercials. I said, Dick, I need you to stress, you know, where you can, whatever. And he put his hands on his hips and he goes, I'm not going to do that. Roughly, gruffly, and abruptly. Wow. And everyone on that soundstage stopped. <laughs> there were people up on ladders looking down, and all eyes are on me. I felt like, what was that, Morgan Stanley, where everyone looked at yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. Anyhow, and in my mind, I'm 32 years old or whatever, I'm going, oh, my God, what do I do now? You know, this guy's taking me on. Sure. So we set up the shot, and I go back to my director's chair, and I go, ready, Dick, you're going to do it my way. Set, you're going to say da-da-da-da-da-da, whatever I wanted. <laughs> Action. <laughs> and he does it. He does exactly the way I want it. And I, when I say cut, I turn around like a little skunk <laughs> running away. And I go back to what they call Video Village, where you can watch all the monitors and replay the tape. Uh, even though it's on film, we have tape. And I'm sitting there, and I'm... All my eyes are totally focused on this monitor. And I say, play it back for me, please. And they play it back. And now I hear a clip-clop, clip-clop. Oh, no. He's walking directly behind my chair, and he's standing there. And I can feel him. I don't have to look. Yeah. I know he's there. <laughs> and I asked the guy, the tech, technician again. I said, play it again, please. And they play the second time. One more time. And the third time they play it. And with that, I just cock my head back and look straight up at the sky and he's looking over me. And, and I kind of look at him well and he goes, you were right. And that was the end of any problem I might have ever had. So now fast forward another year, he, uh, we're on stage. It seemed like we always got radio ratings the day we were shooting commercials. Ratings came out that day. We had done fantastic again. And it was a nice time. Dick calls me in the makeup, and he goes, you're really good at what you do. I said, well, thank you. I've been a lucky guy, radio. He goes, I'm not talking about radio. <laughs> he goes, enough of that. You're a great director. We're going to form a company, and you're going to direct me in everything I do. All these TV commercials. Wow. And I went, really? He goes, yeah. Do you have a guy? Yeah. Okay, well, call the office, set up a meeting, yada, yada. We set up a meeting. We went to Val's, which is in Toluca Lake. It's now a famous uh, Trader Joe's, okay. but it was a nice restaurant at one time. And we sit there and have lunch. And Dick's telling me his history about payola, you know, the payola hearings and sure. how he got out of that, how he had to testify before Congress. He's being very open with me. And I finally get to the subject and I say, and how much money are we going to have here? 
And he puts his hand up and goes, whoa. He goes, have you heard about me? <laughs> I go, what? He goes, I'm a shark. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I know that about you. He goes, uh, do you have a guy? I said, yeah, I have a guy, meaning an attorney. He says, well, so do I. You and I are artists, and we have to get along with one another. So we're going to let them get in the mud pit and wrestle. And they're going to work out a deal, and then you and I will work together. We have to like each other. And I went, okay, so the attorneys meet. They can't hammer out any kind of an agreement. But for years thereafter, if you were a radio station, a vitamin pill, a lot of different things we did over the years, if you called Dick Clark Productions said you wanted Dick to be a spokesperson for you, he would say, call Johnny K. He knows how the deal works. And for That's 17 crazy. years, I directed I him. remember actually when we were on set, because I was very fortunate to work with you for so many years. Yeah. And we did several commercials with Dick, but I also remember doing some other stations. I remember we did a station down in San Diego and uh, a few other stations, and you did those. Right. He, we, he wanted to syndicate his commercials, and we successfully did that. But it was beyond syndication because we really customized each one for the client. And the great thing about having Dick Clark, your ratings went up. If you bought enough television time, that's the big if. You have to have enough weight on television so that eyes see it. He can uh, make your numbers go up. Amazing. It was a fantastic to be able to work with you guys and oh, be part of that whole whole process. Let's talk a little bit about now Coast is, you're doing great at Coast and obviously having a tremendous amount of success all through most of the whole mid to back half of the 80s into the 90s. Mm -hmm. um, tell me a little bit about how K-Big comes into your life. Well, I'm coming to the end of a deal with Cox and Coast and they're, they have an offer on the table, but I don't like the offer. And I remember... Uh, Cox let me consult radio stations all across the country. So I'm in Salt Lake when this phone call happens. And I get a call from someone within Cox who says, Johnny, you have to sign your deal. You have to sign it by tonight, like immediately. I can't tell you why I can go to prison for this. I said, I'm not going to sign a bad, bad deal. I'm not afraid of going to another station in L.A. I'll find a station. He goes, you really need to do this. Well, I didn't. What this person knew was Cox was going to sell the stations to AM FM Broadcasting, Jemmy DeCastro's company. And so the, the sale finally happened. Uh, they decided that they uh, would let me go. I happened to be in Atlanta at the time when I resigned. And I kept getting paid. I kept, <laughs> I kept getting checks <laughs> through the mail. I'd call up Atlanta and say, hey, this has got to be a mistake. I'm getting checks. They said, oh, don't worry about it. Just take it. Eventually, they'll stop. Okay. Well, now the, the day has come where Cox Radio is going to hand off to AMFM, and they get into this church, uh, the Wilshire E. Bell on Wilshire Boulevard, and there is Bob Neal, who's part of the Cox Radio division, saying, so long, we've sold you to Jimmy DeCastro, who's up on stage. And I just show up. I, I'm not an employee. I just want to watch the fun. I'm <laughs> sitting on the aisle. And uh, Bob does his thing. Jimmy steps up. And the staff of the radio stations, because K-Big was really attacking Coast. Like, they're the ones who play Barry Manilow. And yeah. they roll their eyes. They ask the question, 
uh, is KBIG going to um, stop attacking Coast? And KBIG plays more commercials than Coast. Is Coast going to have to play more commercials? And Jimmy is walking toward me down the aisle. <laughs> and he puts his hand on my shoulder and he goes, it's all up to this guy right here. Now, you kind of understand there's another program director that's been named, of course. I'm not, I'm not PD of anything. And I'm looking quizzically at him. Another question comes up and he goes, Johnny, what do you think? Meaning me, not the other Johnny who was the program director at the time. Great guy too, Johnny Chang. Who's doing very well for himself. Uh, yeah. Oh, he's great. I'm yeah. so proud of him. Anyhow, uh, I, I wander out to the parking lot real quick and call my attorney, John Journey. I said, John, I know why the checks have been coming. <laughs> because they showed AMFM, I'm part of intellectual property. They think they own me. <laughs> they think they have a deal with me. And we don't have anything. And John drove over, and Steve Smith was there with AMFM. And in the driveway of the Hyatt Hotel, we cut a deal with the new general manager of uh, KBIG and Coast, uh, Ed Cramp. And they wanted me to go to KBIG because I wouldn't go to Coast and step on Johnny's toes. Amazing. Yeah. Right place, right time. Thank you, God. You know, so immense now, blessings. You do this for, I think, about a year. And then they give you Coast as well, correct? Yeah, just like Kayrith gave me the wave. <laughs> I learned that lesson when I was at KFI. No, I'm sorry. I was at Coast and they gave me KFI. And I learned that you can't have two children and love them equally. Either both are going to suffer a little bit or one's going to suffer a lot. You just can't do it. There's not enough hours in the day. You can't pay attention to both. And this is before the Telecommunications Act and all these meetings and sales and, 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 and. Sure. So I didn't want to do it. Ed Cramp, who had hired me at KBIG, please, you got to do it for me. I love Ed. Yes. You know, you know Ed. He was yeah. your boss, too. Um, and I took it on. And it was fine for a while. I think it worked really well for, for quite some while. Yeah. What? Let's go back to really quick, though, about having two radio stations. And now you were one of the first. I mean, it was pretty uncommon at that time. Usually a station had a dedicated program director, especially in the major markets. Right. I had seen smaller markets. Now the norm is it's highly, highly unusual that you've got a dedicated program director for one radio station. It's usually you're doing multiple radio stations. And a lot of times you're doing an on-air shift. Do you think that's got something to do with the issues that our medium has had as a whole? Oh, sure. I mean, it, it, it's just impossible. It really is impossible. People make it work, but only up to a point. If you're overseeing in today's world several radio stations, or if you're a group that has eight, eight signals in this market, and the earthquake happens, and you have one or two guys managing the automation of all these stations, who's going on the air? Who's going to help the general public get through this earthquake disaster? and calm them and give out pertinent information when your newsroom, the lights aren't even on. It is a terrible state of affairs this business has found itself in. 
we go through the mid two thirty. We we meet in late nine. We meet actually in two thousand. So we've known each other for nine, 19 years, which blows my mind and crazy story. But do you remember where we met? You said I want to sit here on the floor with Johnny K. I remember <laughs> we were watching a, a Rory Lachlan, uh I think Ellen K. commercial or something, or Rick D. Something. Very, very. This is such a Los Angeles story. So <laughs> I was working at uh, at J Corps at the time. For Roy and I was assistant producer for Rick Dees, and I got invited by Gwen Roberts, who's radio legendary radio person, and unfortunately we lost her a few years ago right. to be her date because Ellen was in a video with Rod Stewart's wife at the time, Rachel Hunter, and they were having basically a debut party of this video, and you were there, and I believe it was it was either at Rod Stewart's house or at Rod Stewart's manager's house, but some beautiful house in Beverly Hills. I remember going to this just amazing home. I can't recall exactly, but it was someplace special. And Gwen introduced us. And yeah, we sat down on the floor <laughs> next to you and we found out about the whole Hemet connection, mm-hmm. and me knowing your niece, Jamie, and going to school with her. And afterwards, we went to Bob's Big Boy. We and did. We did. We went to Bob's Big Boy. Some things after. never change. <laughs> and we started working. You brought me over pretty pretty quickly thereafter because J-Corps at that point, we changed ownership, I want to say like three times within the scope of like nine months, but it ended up being J-Corps that owned K-Big Coast. Um, well, Rory was a big part of that. Yeah, he big put time. us together. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely, and I give Roy a tremendous yeah. amount, uh, a tremendous amount of credit. He you bet. he allowed it for sure. Uh, we had met, and uh, I was very fortunate to have met you. And it goes back to having that who luck, and certainly who luck uh, with Roy as well. And that's how the whole thing came about. And I got to uh, to work with you, and we really had a tear that I recall for you know a good four or five years. I eventually became the program director of K Big mm-hmm. Coast. Was the, or, uh, Stella was the program director for Coast, and then you were consulting us and doing very, very well. And then at that point, and I remember you telling me some of the things you've always advised me on is to have fuck you money. And you had that, <laughs> you had that fuck you money. You're at a point where- you're It's doing- so strange to hear the F word and be wearing headphones. It, <laughs> it, it goes against every grain of my body. Yeah. And uh, everything's going in incredibly well. And you made the decision to move to K-Earth. And what was your thought process? Because I remember at that time that you were pretty happy in that role because you were, I, I think you were a little bit burned out, but I think you were also happy having the freedom and the flexibility to do what you wanted to do, to come in when you wanted to come in. And what made you decide to jump in and go back at it full time? There was only one other station in Los Angeles that I, I had always wanted. I mean, I worked at K-Rock, Kiss before it was Kiss, uh, Cute 102. I'd done country on KGBS here in town. I had done most everything except 93KHJ. But the AM days were over. They were long over. The closest thing to KHJ and Bill Drake, who I, you know, he was my idol, um, was K-Earth. And I thought that would be great to do K-Earth one day. Well, the job opened up and I went for it, Um, which is a story unto itself, the way I got that one. Um, my, uh, I had, uh, pitched Marine Lasord, who was the general manager. Again, who you're still friends with. I saw yeah, her yeah, she comes to the parties yeah, as well. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, I have some pretty good friendships, yeah. I guess. Anyhow, um, and she's interviewing the world again. Everyone's saying they want to be the PD of K-Earth and putting it in the trades even. And I'm not hearing anything. And I'm discussing this with my attorney and I go, something's wrong here, you know. 
this shouldn't take this long. <laughs> um, and he calls me up on a weekend, and he he's finally realized, yeah, this is going, this is not going our way. He goes, I want you to send an email to Marine Sword saying, I'm taking myself out of the running. I'm going to do my television work. Thank you very much. I said, but I really don't want to do that, John. He goes, you've got to do it. I'm te- you've trusted me on everything. This is what you have to do. So I send it. And that was a tough thing to press the enter button and let the email fly away. And within 20 minutes, my phone's ringing. It's Maureen Lesorge. She goes, uh, what's this email about? <laughs> I go, and I'm, I'm doing it. What my attorney says, says I'm out. Don't want to do it. Good luck. You know, thanks for consideration. And she goes, no, you're the guy. <laughs> I said, I'm the guy? She goes, yeah, you always have been the guy. I said, well, how come I don't know that? <laughs> she goes, look, let me tell you something about myself. I'm very methodical, and I th- check things out very carefully. It takes me time. But John Cherney was right. Nothing happens without a deadline, and we set a deadline by me resigning you know, my offer to uh, work for the company. And it happened. And in fact, another story, which I've told Mo, so I can now broadcast this. Uh, she held an interview, and we met at this restaurant on Melrose can't think of the name of it right now. An Italian joint that I think is still there. Anyhow, uh, we do the one interview. She asked for another interview. And my attorney's getting a little irked by this. Okay, because he went to the first one with me. Okay. And I do the second one on my own. And she wants yet another one. And my attorney tells me, I've had enough of this. This is what you're going to do. So we meet and... She starts asking me questions. I said, no, you're done interviewing me. I'm going to interview you. (laughs) I said, I hear that you attend staff meetings of air talent. Why do you do that? (laughs) And she goes, she defended herself. She goes, well, if I had a good program director, I wouldn't have to be in there. (laughs) And that's what sealed it. And I guess I can tell this story. I hope I'm not. Ah. It's over. Yeah, why not? So I had to do one other. I had to appear before the programming magnets at Clear Channel at the time. No, no, women. CBS. CBS, yeah, CBS. And they're at some hotel in West Hollywood, and we're up on the roof having drinks and whatnot. And they're, they're putting me through my paces. And I still don't know if I really have the job. Actually, this was before the Marine thing. Yeah, okay, this was probably interview two, I think it was. And... Was we, this like Dan Mason and Greg Strassel? Yeah, Greg Strassel. And who was the format captain? I can't remember his name right now. Was it, uh, no, Jim was, Jim Ryan was still at uh, No, it at wasn't Clear Jim. Channel. Yeah. Anyhow, we come down the elevator and I scurry out of the elevator and get on the sidewalk all, all alone. And I call my attorney. I go, I got the job. He goes, how do you know you have the job? I said, I know I got the job. He goes, what tells you? Did they say they hired you? I said, no, but I got the job. <laughs> he, 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 finally, he's, you know, he finally squeezes it out of me. I go, she kissed me in the elevator coming down. I got the job. <laughs> 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 and 
That's true. It was a friendly kiss, but it was a kiss. I could own CBS if it if I didn't get the job. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And then you go on a tear at uh, at CBS, and yeah, uh, we had a good time there. Just Took it back yeah. to number one, twelve plus. It's just have an amazing run, and then you also take over the reins of the Wave, which I didn't want to do. And how did that come about? That came about Ed Krampfitz, now the market manager of CBS. Which is wild, because you're reunited with Ed. Yes, because Ed was he's your back. Boss. Right. But it was a good, he's back. back yeah. <laughs> Unlike some others that we've experienced. Because at that time, CBS was going through market managers quickly, if yeah, I recall. Yeah, I was there, what, six years? I had seven different managers in my six years. Unbelievable. Anyhow, uh, he always wanted me to, for economic reasons, Come on, you got to program the you know the wave. It needs to go toward AC. You you know AC being the coast you know conductor. And I said I won't do that because Paul was the program director of uh, of the wave. Right, Paul Goldstein, correct? Yeah, yeah. And Paul was my friend. I said I won't yeah. do that to my friend. Um, and I don't want to do it anyhow. Listen, right. I've learned what it's like <laughs> yeah. to do two babies. <laughs> Let They're me both- just have one. Yeah, they're, they're, right. they're both. And I just wanted, I was doing care for fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'd have to get serious if I took on You the literally were doing it for fun, right? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 I didn't need to work. Right. So anyhow, he kept bugging me and bugging me and bugging me. And finally, much like Frank Murphy and Dick Clark, okay, if you do, if this happens, I'll do this, right? I finally said to Ed, he goes, you got to help me. I said, Ed, tell you what. If K Earth ever becomes number one, I will <laughs> I will take over the wave. Not expecting K Earth to ever hit it. And those ratings rolled out during a Christmas holiday. And I'll never forget, I was at Hollywood and Highland, crossing in front of uh, Ripley's Believe It or Not, waiting for the signal change. Phone rang, and I saw it was Ed Cramp. And I answered the phone. I said, Hi, Ed. He goes, Did you see the numbers? I said, Yes. He goes, number one (laughs) you know what that means don't you i go i can't do it i won't do that he goes look i've already spoken to paul paul knows we're making a change he's giving my blessings to hire you which was oh man what a guy yeah and i was stuck i you know i had given ed my word so that's how it came that (sighs) the wave was in my lap as well when did you decide for real this time, because we'd had this conversation several times that you were done, you didn't want to do it anymore. When did it finally, you decide that this was it and what was the reason? Well, it, you know, the corporate meetings were becoming way too much and CBS radio was filled with meetings and layers of management. It was, it was tough. Plus CBS did not believe in marketing. You know, we were well past the telecom days. Don't need to do it. Where else are they going to go? You want to know where they're going to go? They're going to go to their iPads and all these yeah. other places. Anyhow, um, I had had a dog named Chemo that I loved a lot, and he passed away, and I've always had an affection for animals, so this really affected me terribly. Uh, and during my time at uh, K-Earth, uh, I had a dog, uh, Sammy, and Sammy was getting older. And I remember uh, I was about a year out from my deal, the end of my deal. And Sammy was sitting there looking at me in the bathroom as I'm shaving or whatever. And I looked down at him. I said, I'm not going to let you pass without me being here for you. 
I'm going to give up my career for you. And literally, that's what I did. Because at the end, Steve Carver, who was now the market manager of CBS, was offering me a three-year deal with a real nice increase. And at first, they didn't want to give me an increase. And I told Steve, I said, look, I've got to have this. And it was a six-figure increase. Because I don't need the job. I have the luxury of saying, I don't need this. And good luck. So the day finally comes when he says, oh, it's the day before the end of my deal. No, three days before the end of my deal. He goes, he calls me and goes, can we take a walk around the block? We'd never done that before. We'd never even had a drink. What is this about? <laughs> okay, yeah. We're walking around the block, talking about this and that. And he goes, I got you the money. I had to fly to New York three times. I got you the money. Amazing. And I stopped in my tracks. I said, you did? Because it, it really surprised me. Because I was out. Mentally, I was out. Right. He goes, so we have a deal, right? I said, Steve, no, I don't think we do. Because now I'm recalling my promise to my dog. He goes, what? Do you know what I went through to get this for you? I said, I, I really appreciate it. You're a great GM. <sighs> he goes, well, can I at least call New York and tell them you're thinking? I said, look, I need 24 hours to digest this. And the next day was a staff meeting, a department head meeting. I'm sitting in there. Everything's going on. And uh, everyone leaves, and I stay in. Steve stays in. I go, I, go, I guess you want to talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, yeah, can I? And he was pulling out his phone. He goes, can I call them and tell them we have a deal? I said, no, you can't. I have to leave. Unreal, man. So I did give them some time, as I recall, and I found there's a wonderful app in the iPhone store, a countdown clock. I remember you showing me that. And I could set clock. it up, and it had a picture of my dog, that. and it counted down I every second. Absolutely remember you showing me that. Yeah, it, count, it counts down every second until the end. And so I would have it sitting on my table at work, and uh, Steve would come in and go, I hate that thing. <laughs> <laughs> he was a great guy. Anyhow, so, uh, what I didn't realize about the countdown clock, I'm showing it to Chachi now as we record this, it keeps counting after the deadline. So what does it say? It says not, it, it says not current. Oh, it does. Oh my gosh. It was five years, 11 months ago and 27 days. In three more days, it's six years since I've been out. I can't believe it's been that long. Yeah. It That's keeps counting. It's wonderful. I look at that all the time now wow. going- because one of my this goals so was just cute. to live six you know, years. <laughs> can we take a picture of this? And I want to put oh, this yeah, up when yeah, we yeah. post the podcast. We'll take a picture we'll of this. Do a screenshot. also want to put a picture of your train set, which is amazing. <laughs> and uh, I know we talked a little bit of that at the beginning, but one of Johnny's hobbies, uh, he's he's very active in, in retirement and uh, one of his hobbies, certainly with his animals. And he's got uh, a beautiful, beautiful uh, Samoyed uh, Keanu and then also a beautiful golden retriever, uh, Summer. Um, he just recently got married. Congratulations. Yes, yes. After 32 years <laughs> of dating. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, his partner uh, Kenny, uh, who is is fantastic, very talented uh, publicist, uh, works with uh, Margaret Cho. Uh, works with uh, Lit. Um, yeah, he, he brought he brought together uh, Pentatonix. He didn't bring together, but he promoted uh, Pentatonix and the Jonas Brothers, and 
He's worked with Madonna and the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Joan Jett and, 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 and. Just uh, an amazing spirit. So yeah. he's gotten married. Uh, this train set, and when I say train set, this is spectacular. It literally, I don't know how big is it. It's It's 20, like 16 and a half feet by eight or something. It's 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 a layout. It's gigantic, and there's multiple trains, and it's a layout of Disneyland with a Matterhorn Mountain in the <laughs> middle of it. Uh, the sky buckets, the monorail, uh, the Jungle Cruise, yeah. uh, all sorts of different aspects. Main Street of the park, and Johnny actually went and collected the audio. There's a full-on soundtrack <laughs> to this train set, so you can hear all the sounds of of Disney as the train set is running. Uh, it is awesome, and I'd, I'll link that video if you don't mind as sure. well that yeah. you shot of it. Because uh, just a, a phenomenal uh, looking uh, set, and every time I've got someone in town, I'd take them over to check it out. Anytime. And uh, also uh, a board member of the Pacific uh, Broadcast or the Pacific Pioneer Broadcasters, which is going to uh, be renamed shortly, Hollywood Media Professionals. Oh, I like that. A little bit, a uh, little bit cleaner. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the Hollywood Media, so very involved with that. Yeah. Uh, organization, which is fantastic, and uh, just I got three more quick questions for you. Sure. Um, I've always held you, uh, and I think arguably most people are going to agree with me. It's you or Jim Ryan as far as the most, I think, successful, recognizable AC programmers. And I, you know, there's a lot of others out there for sure. But if you look at Jim's success and you guys have had a lot of parallels, Jim programmed LTW, uh, went on to CBS, now Intercom to program, uh, WCBS, which is classic hits, um, uh, similar to you doing AC and then into, into classic hits. I know you guys have a, used to have a good, re- good relationship. Oh yeah. Jim's terrific. By the way, I do need to inject it. Jim had called me. I was having lunch at Fred Siegel's. And uh, it's funny how I can reti- remember <laughs> yeah. everywhere I Where eat. You are, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jim called me and says, hey, well, how would you like to come over to K-Big and AMFM? He was the one who made the oh, initial contact. Oh, he was the one. Oh, I didn't realize yeah. that. So Jim, Jim goes, we have this opening and uh, there's no one else. We, we got to hire Johnny K. So. Oh, I didn't know that part of the story as well. Yes. Jim's incredibly talented. If the two of you guys were, we're talking the, 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 the celebrity program director death match, and you were programming against each other in the same market, which oh unfortunately we never got to see, who do you think would win? We tie. Be a nice, <laughs> be a nice tie. <laughs> you know, he might get, get me a tenth on one survey and I get him a two tenths on the next. <laughs> I love that answer. Who were, and we talked about many of your mentors, but uh, who were, would you say, the most significant mentors throughout your career? Oh, so many people helped me along the way. Um, you know, Don Dalton, Mary Catherine, we spoke about at Coast. Um, Marine Lasorde, of course, at K-Earth got me in there. Uh, my attorney, would have done nothing without my attorney, John Journey. And John, by the way, he really is almost like a James Bond character. He's got a black belt of the mind, but John is like a phenomenal motorcycle rider. Years ago, yes. I went riding with him. Oh, you did? Yeah, I went riding up to Newcomb's Ranch, up the two, which is fairly technical riding, and he kicked my ass. He's an amazing motorcycle rider. He would hit. He would hike every day to the top of uh, Mount Hollywood in Griffith Park at 3.30 in the morning. Unbelievable. And then he's also, wasn't he an accomplished horseback rider as well? Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's why he, he helped develop Radio Ranch with Dick Orton. That's right. And, yeah. you know, Chicken Man. And he made yeah. Dick a, a monster personality and uh, you know, a huge company. 
uh, through Radio Ranch when they were in Chicago together. Maybe John should be our second interview for the Benstown. Uh, John's podcast. great. John Cherney. He John's talks like this. <laughs> yeah, he, he's, a, he's a wonderful man. And John, um, John taught me a lot about negotiation. Uh, so did Cox. Cox uh, would ha- have seminars for us how to negotiate with talent and whatnot. I've already mentioned this before. Nothing happens without a deadline. You have to set a deadline. Okay, then everything happens in the last 30 minutes. Otherwise, they just talk about it forever. Um, I learned that you have to, if you're going to hire these people, listen to them. You paid good money for their expertise. If you hired the right person, they know what they're doing. And I would always tell John this when he was renegotiating or or negotiating a new deal. John, you have my blessing to blow it up. And that's what an attorney needs to hear because they will not get you everything unless you do that. You give them the autonomy. Right. And he taught me about magic, which I'm not going to publicize here, but magic is a big part of uh, being successful. Uh, Just ask Walt Disney, Um, which you can't. I'm hoping we're going to have a lot of programmers uh, and certainly uh, people on the programming side of the business listen to this podcast. And one of the reasons why we think it's going to hopefully be different than some of the others that are out there. What would be a, a piece of advice about the Johnny K secret uh, recipe that some programmers could take back and implement at their stations? Well, it, it, it truly is the magic uh, <clears throat> phenomenon, which I can't share. Um, it's tough to do today. I had... I was lucky enough to have Tim Conway Jr. as a friend, and we went to lunch yesterday. His father just recently passed. Right. Great guy. Great man. Funny guy. Anyhow, Tim pointed out to me, he goes, do you know, it's easier to get a job being one of the L.A. Dodgers than it is to be a talk radio host in Los Angeles. Because if you count everyone, weekenders, you only have 51 people in Los Angeles radio doing any form of talk. And there are more Dodgers. (laughs) 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 And I never realized that. But he goes, there are no jobs. So it it truly is about survival now. The money is not what it once was. Another reason why I I took my leave. Um, The autonomy is gone. Uh, but if you love it and you have a passion for it, and you remember this, young people, and I'm going even below you, youthful Chachi, <laughs> yeah. um, they don't know. People getting into the business today don't realize what it used to be like. So they think it's wonderful the way it is. They're, they have passion for the way it is and what it might become. But radio is no longer going to be studios and transmitters. Not with 5G, not with uh, internet on the dash. You know, these places are, are not going to be important anymore. And Dan Mason's the one who told me that when, he, when they gave me the wave. He goes, quit thinking of it as a transmitter and studio complex. It's not that anymore. We don't care if they get it on their fingernail with a little chip. They're picking up programming somehow. Programming is always going to be king. Uh, you know, those are the shows that make network TV now. So it's creativity. You have to be creative. If you're just going to do the, maintain the status quo, 
you might be able to have a job and, you know, last a few years, but you'll be highly unsatisfied. It's about uh, content, which I think makes a tremendous amount of sense. If I'm hearing you correctly and we look at what's happening with Spotify and the evolution of podcasts and all this new content, I'd read actually the other day that there was over 400 more programs produced, television programs produced this year, or I'm sorry, maybe it was this year than last year, 2017 compared to 2018, but there's just all this new content that's getting produced. One of my neighbors is a very high executive with Paramount Pictures. And he was talking about the releases this year, that they only released so many movies. And they never dipped below a higher number than that. And how things are slow. And when they, when they determine how good a picture is, uh, often they go, uh, it's not good enough to put the Paramount name on it. They sell it to Netflix. Oh, wow. That's what he told me. I had no idea. Yeah, that they makes get a lot put of their sense. Name I was wondering on. how Amazon and Netflix and all this content, but that yeah. makes a lot of sense. Just like if it's not good enough for CBS, very often it goes on the CW. Right, right. <laughs> no, that makes a tremendous amount of sense. Yeah. Thank you so much for uh, spending the time. It's oh, you're been, welcome. Been a well, a pure pleasure, and thank you for everything you've done in my career and all the things that I've learned. I am so proud of you. I I, I brag about you all the time. You're just. Uh, it's wonderful what you have done with Benstown, especially Benstown, Los Angeles. And uh, continued success forever. Thanks, man. From your mouth to God's ears. <laughs>